cheers God and men and go full way of the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing a king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made a Bethlehem king, and if you have dealt with this, with well and true of all in his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserve, for my father fought for you, and risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his sons, seventy men on one seven, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with you all in his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit against Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the vilest son of the seven sons of Jerubal might come. And their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, and killed him. And on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintop. And they robbed all who passed by them along the way, along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held the festival. And they went into the house of their God, and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And God, all the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubal? And is not Zabel his offspring? Serve the men of Tambor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Subal, the ruler of the city heard the word of God, the son of Heaven, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, God, the son of Heaven, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early, and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem and four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zabel, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintop. And Zabel said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountain for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down to the center of the land, and one company is coming to the direction of the diviner's nose. Then Zabel said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And then he fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah. And Zabel drove out Gaal and his relatives, so that they could not dwell in Shechem. On the following day, the people went out to the field, and Abimelech was told, 
He took his people and divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the field. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and took the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and showed it was fallen. But all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it. They entered the stronghold of the house of Elberim. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to, the, to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the, top, the stronghold on fire over them. So that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men. Then Abimelech went to Sebed and encamped against Sebed and captured it. But there was a strong power within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to work with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through and died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father, and killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Joshua, the son of Jerubal. And God had his blessing to the reading of his word. A long passage this morning, we don't have much time to consider it. So there's no way to get into every detail. So let me just kind of hang the passage onto three hooks, if you will, make three points or, 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 or three uh, aspects of this story we might kind of look at. First, we're going to look at Abimelech's pride in verses 1 through 6. Then secondly, Jotham's warning in verses 7 to 21. And then thirdly, God's judgment from verse 22 to verse 57. Let's consider first Abimelech's pride. Just to kind of back up and review for just a moment, remember that Gideon had many wives. We were going down in chapter 8, verse 30. And from these wives, he had 70 sons who were born to him including Abimelech, the main figure in chapter 9. Now, Abimelech's name in Hebrew literally means, my father is king, which is an interesting thing. You would expect that his father, Gideon, was king. But you, as you were here last week, I remember the story that after Gideon had, after God had used Gideon to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites and won the battle against them and had returned home, the men of Israel really offered Gideon Kingship. They offered to make him king over the nation. They offered they wanted him to rule over them. But Gideon refused their offer on theological grounds. He said in verse 23 of chapter 8 that the Lord is king, that the Lord rules over them. He rules over his people. And Gideon's words were true. God is the king of Israel. He is the king of all creation, certainly, but he was specifically king for his people. So Gideon's words were true, they were right, but his actions indicated otherwise. In fact, as we saw last week, Gideon was really playing the part of a king without taking on 
the title. So after Gideon's death, it's not surprising that Abimelech, or really that any of the other sons of Gideon, would assume kingship for himself. If his name is, my father is king, then Abimelech certainly would have thought it would have been right for him to step into that role. That's exactly what Abimelech does in chapter 9. In verses 1 and 2, he strategizes on how to become king. Again, he has 70 brothers, and there are 70 rivals to the throne. And so the first thing Abimelech does is he seeks to, con- to consolidate his support. He returns back to Shechem, which is his mother's hometown, where his mother's relatives live, and he convinces them to support his plan to make them, to make him king. And they are wholeheartedly agreed with Abimelech's plan. And so they begin a whisper campaign throughout the entire city of Shechem to really encourage the rest of the town's support. But with their backing, with the town's backing, Abimelech hires a posse. And they return to Ophrah, which is Gideon's hometown where he lived. It was probably his de facto capital. And he's not officially the king, but that's where he lived. That's where he's acting as king. So it's the de facto capital. And so Abimelech and the posse, they go back to Ophrah. They round up all of his half-brothers, and then he and they execute them. So now with all of his rivals eliminated, the Shechemite leaders in verse 6 acclaim Abimelech as their king. Now what I want to kind of press into here a little more is, well, why does Abimelech do this? Why has he done this? What's motivating him to take this action? And what does this tell us about him spiritually? Well, I think we can see quite clearly that Abimelech was motivated by sinful pride. He thought of himself more highly than he thought of his brothers, more highly than he thought of the people of Shechem, more highly than he thought of really the rest of the people of Israel. He thought of himself more highly than he should have. He thought of himself more highly than other people. He wanted for himself what did not rightly belong to him. And he took for himself what he had no right to claim. There is only one person that Abimelech thinks about in this story, and it's himself. He wants to be king no matter the cost, at any cost. He uses other people. We see that he uses his own relatives in Shechem. He uses the leaders of Shechem to get what he wants. And he destroys others so that he can take for himself what does not belong to him. What he does to his half-brothers is really an injustice. They do not deserve death. They don't deserve death to begin with. They don't deserve to die the way that they did. What Abimelech does towards his half-brothers is of the highest injustice. It's an injustice of the highest magnitude. And so he takes their lives unjustly without cause. Well, Abimelech's sinful pride is tied together with his rejection of God. These two things work together in Abimelech's life. His outward actions derive from his inward rebellion, his heart rebellion against God. If you were carefully reading through this passage, you would notice that there, the name of God is only mentioned three times in 57 verses. Two of those three times coming at the very end of the book, all three times only coming from the mouth of the narrator, from the person who is writing this book. There is no acknowledgement of God in Abimelech's lips or in his heart. Abimelech seems to, not seems to, is rebelling against the Lord. He has no concern at all for what God desires or what God indicates by his word. 
Abimelech seeks out kingship for himself when his father had said that only God is to be the true king of his people Israel. Again, Gideon's words in chapter 8, verse 23, the Lord will rule over you. God will rule over his people. And while he would provide a human king for his people in due time, God would make that choice. He would determine the time. But Abimelech desires to be king outside of God's established order. And so he is acting here as a usurper against God's rule. Abimelech is also here operating outside of God's law. Consider the ways in which he broke even the Ten Commandments. He covets for himself a position that belongs to God. He bears false witness, stirring up his mother's family and encouraging them to, to run a whisper campaign to deceive the Shechemites. He then commits murder by killing his half-brothers without cause. Those are just three of the ten that we could list. So clearly, Abimelech opts to live outside of God's covenant parameters and operate outside of his law. And then we see that Abimelech's rebellion is both noticeably seen in his embrace of paganism. The slaughter of his half-brothers, you see in verse 5, takes place on one stone. And the fact that all of those brothers seem to be executed at one time, at one place, on one stone, seems to point to a pagan ritual involving human sacrifice. Abimelech may be doing more here than simply eliminating his rivals. He may be appealing for help from pagan deities. We also see that Abimelech's acclamation as king in verse 6 takes place by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. The pillar here is probably a monument that represents or dedicated to an idol. And the oak we see in the scripture being a symbol that is oftentimes used by the pagans as a, as a sacred spot or a sacred place. Oak trees were revered in Canaanite religion, so this may have had a special significance to Canaanite religion. So Abimelech's participation here in pagan worship and his devotion to pagan gods signals his rejection of Yahweh as his covenant God, as Israel's covenant God. Now, in some ways, Abimelech's pursuit of kingship is somewhat appropriate, right? It's appropriate not because it's right. It's appropriate because this is what we've been seeing throughout the book of Judges, right? For those of you who've been here since day one, since the, the very first chapter, we have seen that this is an Israelite problem. Israel's ongoing spiritual problem is sinfulness against the Lord, rebellion against the Lord in his ways, the worship of idols and, and pagan deities. So Abimelech's pursuit of kingship here is part and parcel of Israel's sinfulness. It's not that Abimelech here is leading Israel in a bad direction. Israel is already heading in a bad direction spiritually. Abimelech is simply one person who represents their spiritual problem. He represents the heart of what is wrong in Israel. He represents the spiritual orientation of the nation. And you might what does all this have to do with me? As I said at the outset, Abimelech is a portrait of us. We learn things about ourselves by looking at him. He is a portrait of every person. He is a representation of the spiritual condition of every person, every fallen person who lives in our world. We read in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is the people of all things. 
and desperately sick. In Ephesians 2, verse 3, Paul says that we all must live the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, we like to know that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We're born with a heart depraved by sinful pride. In fact, our sin, we are born with a sin nature. And we manifest that sinfulness, that interior sinfulness, outwardly, because of a sinful heart. In fact, our rebellion against God, inwardly, is all expressed outwardly in the sins that we commit. And so all, out, all ongoing sin is also rebellion against God. And the fact of the matter is that apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, nobody wants God to be king. We all want to be kings of our micro-kingdoms. We all want to banish God from our little realm. We all want to nullify his rules that would govern over us. We all want to banish his laws that we can live and to our heart's extent and give birth to every simple desire that is brewing in our hearts. We want to banish God and devote ourselves to all the gods of our age. And I think we're seeing that more and more, not just simply where we are historically speaking, but just even now, the month of June has become a pagan month, right? Celebrating and giving expression to all kinds of, of God, the gods of this age, where we are encouraged to turn aside from the Lord, to not look to his word, not look to him, and to look to all the things he needs to give devotion to them. Friends, the is you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand that that's a dangerous thing, that's a bad thing. It's a very dangerous thing. And as we progress through this story, you will see why it is dangerous. But I think the important point to have to mull on right now is that we are a You are a You are a sinner just as he is. Your sinful pride might take different forms, but the essence is the same. It is natural for us as human beings to love ourselves, to give an audience to our evil desires, to pursue those desires, to reject God's law, to reject his kingship, to withhold your creator the what he is due, which is your undivided, unfettered, and untainted devotion. That is our natural condition. As we look to God's word, we see a reflection of that in this book. If you are a Christian, when we praise the Lord as we come this morning, a Benoit is a picture of what we used to be. He is a picture of what God has delivered us from in Jesus Christ. But he's also a picture of what we can be if we do not continue fearing the Lord, if we do not submit our hearts to Him and our lives. So a Benoit is a dangerous fellow. And by the end of verse 6, he seems unstoppable. But as Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's exactly what we're going to see. In verses 7 to 21, we see Jotham's warning. Jotham's warning. So, to kind of pick up on one detail from verses 1 through 6 that I deliberately omitted. When Abimelech eliminated his rivals, executed them, 
He did this one. And that is Gideon's youngest son, Joppa. Joppa. He hid himself and he escaped the massacre. And so once all this happens, once Abimelech is acclaimed to be king, and Joppa hears the report of what Abimelech has done, then he goes to the top of Mount Gerizim. Now, I didn't have a mountain to speak, but if you can imagine, in the middle of Israel, there are two important mountains. The mountain to the south is Mount Gerizim, and the mountain to the north is Mount Ebal. They're very close proximity. And in the middle of these two mountains is the city of Shechem. Okay? So where all this is taking place is the city. Joplin goes up to the top of the southern mountain, Mount Gerizim, which is important in Israel's history. Because back in Joshua chapter 8, after the Israelites had come into the promised land, after they had conquered the city of Jericho and I and made a presence and a base of operations in the middle of the country, the nation was divided in two parts. Six tribes go to Mount Gerizim in the south, six tribes go to the Mount Ebal in the north, and they were to shout to one another the covenant blessings and the covenant cursing. So on Mount Gerizim, the six tribes were to shout to the people of Israel, reminding themselves of the covenant blessings, that if the people of Israel obeyed the Lord, God would bless them in certain ways. But then the other six tribes would shout back the covenant curses, those punishments, those curses that God would bring upon his people if they wandered away from his covenant. And so it's interesting here that, 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 that Jonathan goes up to this mountain near Eden, and he is going to shout loudly to the top of this mountain to the people of Shechem, but he's not going to shout covenant blessing. He's going to shout warning to the people for abandoning God is their king. In essence, he is almost rehearsing in a parabolic form the covenant curses. He is deliberately warning them. And so in verses 8 to 13, or 8 to 15, actually, uh, uh, Jotham tells a fable. And in this fable, there are trees who come to three other types of, of, of trees, right? And the olive tree, and the fig tree, and the grapevine. And those trees appeal to each one to rule over them as a body of trees. But each one in order declines because they are more dignified than the other trees. They are more productive, they are fruitful, they are useful, their their produce is useful to the people, it's useful to the to the to the, to the nation, the land. And so they they decide it's not wise for us to set aside our place, our status, our productivity, our usefulness in order to rule over the trees. And so in verse 14, the trees who are still eager for a king approach the bramble, right? The unsightly, thorny, useless bramble. And so they ask the bramble, rule over it. They try to rule over them. And the, the bramble says, what else are they going to do? Eagerly agrees to rule over them. He will be their king. So in the end of verse 15, he makes promises that he cannot deliver.
He is not a pristine figure. There are a lot of flaws by him, a lot of troubling things he does. But he is commended in Scripture for his faithfulness in trusting God and leading the people to uh, have victory over the Midianites. God used him to save his people from the hand of Midian. And so here, Jonathan is saying, look, you haven't given my father's house the kind of honor, the kind of remembrance that would accord with the good that Gideon had done for his people. And then he says that they acted deceptively and wickedly against Gideon's sons by conspiring to murder them in cold blood. So he points out what they've done wrong. Well, then he warns them that this unholy alliance that they had made will result in mutually assured destruction, right? Bemelech will devour the city with fire, and the city will devour Bemelech with fire. Jotham here really in this fable is prophesying of mutually assured destruction. And so he warns both Abimelech and the Shechemites that they will receive what they deserve because of their treachery. So Jotham here is making an important theological point. Spiritual treachery deserves God's punishment. And again, we see that embodied in this proverb I read just a moment ago. Proverbs 15 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So both the Bethlehem and the Shechemites are in danger of God's judgment because they have transgressed God's law. They have expressed their rebellion against God in wicked and sinful acts. Those sins merit God's judgment, and that is exactly what they deserve. But what we also want to see is it's not just what they deserve, but we, it's what we deserve for our sins as well. We deserve God's judgment for our sins. Jonathan's warning here is a good thing, though. It is an opportunity to stop sliding down the slippery slope of judgment. Until the judgment comes, it's going to come, we'll see that in the water part of the chapter, but it hasn't come yet. Until that judgment comes, there's opportunity to repent. A Joseph is not a prophet, but he functions here in the sense of a biblical prophet, right? Because he is he is warning God's people, he is warning the Israelites of the danger of judgment. That's what Old Testament prophets were to do. They were to warn the people of God's judgment that was coming. They were to call the people to repentance. They were to call the people to return to covenant faithfulness. That's exactly what Jotham is doing here. Now, he doesn't include here a call to repentance in this fable and its interpretation, but it's clear here that he's giving them an opportunity to repent. There's an opportunity for Abimelech to stop what he's doing. There's an opportunity for the Shechemites to stop following Abimelech, to turn from their evil, and to be restored to God in covenant relationship with him. That message resonates with us. Because the Bible warns us of our own sins. The Bible is the truth that reveals what God expects of us. The Bible tells us what we're to believe. The Bible tells us how we're to live. The Bible tells us how we are to relate to God. And so by God's word, we evaluate our lives. We lay our lives down next to the measuring stick of God's word, and we evaluate ourselves, and we see not only God's high standard, but we also see how far we fall short. 
we see, if we read the Bible honestly, we see that we are in danger of God's judgment. But we also see that there is a way of salvation. We also hear the call of repentance so that we might avoid God's judgment and might enter into his life and his salvation. The Bible is full of warnings to turn from sin, to cease from rebellion, to fear God, to acknowledge Him, and to appeal to His mercy. And so, when we read the Bible, well, that's why I don't have a hard time with it, because it is so strong. It is so sharp, right? It is in your face. And yet, that is God's warning to us, right? It's like when I drive it, and I lose reality for a moment, and stop paying attention, right? And her car pulls out of me, and my wife says, stop, right? She's not being mean to me or rude to me. She's specifically warning me that there's a car that's pulled up, and if you don't stop, you're going to hit it. And that could cause a problem for all of us. God's warnings are like that. Until the day of final judgment comes, God's warnings, the warnings of the judgment are God's grace to us to stop in our wicked ways to turn and to find life and hope and mercy in Him. Because when the day of judgment comes, there will be no opportunity for that. So God's warnings are His blessings. If you're not a Christian this morning, hear the warning. Understand that you are a sinner. Understand that you are in great need. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your need before God. Acknowledge your need of His salvation. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins, and you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, though we are saved, the Bible continues to warn us. The Bible calls us to continue to walk in the holiness of which we have been called. We are warned not to forsake our first love. We are warned to flee the passions of our flesh so that we might live life to the glory of God. We might know the fullness of his life, his abundant life, that he abundantly provides to us through his spirit. So Jotham here is warning both Abimelech and the Shechemites. But as we see the rest of the chapter plays out, those warnings are unheeded. And so the rest of the chapter, verse 22 to the end, details God's judgment. The last part of this, God's judgment. Well, this is a familiar pattern of the book of Judges, right? The Israelites' main problem is not oppression from outsiders, right? When the Israelites were suffering from Midianites, it was a crushing burden, it was a crushing oppression. But that was not their main problem. Their main problem was the sin, their sin and their rebellion against the Lord, for which God sent those oppressive nations, right? Those oppressive nations were God's judgment for their sin. In other words, they've got to get the sin problem right. They've got to stop their rebellion. And that's what's happening here with the Benelot and with the Shechemites. So in God's divine economy, he sends his judgment upon both Benelot and the Shechemites. We see in verse 22 that Benelot ruled over Israel for three years. Three years he usurped God's rule. Three years he failed to heed God's warning. Three years he failed to repent. Three years God was patient with but in God's time, you see in verse 23, that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Now, 
I don't have time to go into great detail about the theological conundrum of God sending an evil spirit. I would just say very simply here, the word evil does not refer to moral evil. God is not sitting here in what he is doing. The word evil here refers more to disaster or to calamity. We see that God does bring upon people on the earth in his judgment, right? That when something bad happens to us, for example, right? A hurricane comes through and levels a child. That's bad. That's catastrophe. That's calamity. Right? Well, God, being sovereign, is the one who sends those things. God sends those things. God brings his judgment in certain aspects, in certain ways, to certain people at certain times. And so that's exactly what's happening here. God is bringing his judgment to bear upon Abimelech, upon the Shechemites, and really by extension on the people of Israel. And this evil spirit is really God doing that calamitous work. God bringing disaster upon his people. God is not sitting. He's sitting. He's not doing that, but he is bringing something that those who receive it will perceive as being bad. Well, God, by that evil spirit, then, leads the Shechemites to set an ambush against Abimelech while he is away from the city. But Abimelech learns of that plot, and so that plot that the Shechemites have made is going to backfire on them. Their plan is to set an ambush against Abimelech. And that's stirred up by this new figure, Gaal, some outsider who comes in with his people into the city of Shechem. And he stirs up this rebellious spirit among the, the Shechemites. He leads them to turn against Abimelech, and he proposes that they make him their ruler, their king. Look, Abimelech came to rule over you, but where is he? He's gone. He's gone somewhere for now. Abimelech, man, he's, a, he's not a good guy. Make me king. We'll set an ambush for him. We'll, we'll, we'll plot, we'll devise a strategy to, to get rid of him. He's going to free the Shechemites from Abimelech's rule, but he wants their loyalty in return. Well, meanwhile, Babel, who is Abimelech's officer and still is loyal to Abimelech, he sends word to Abimelech about Gaal's plan to ambush him when he and his troops return to Shechem. And so Babel advises Abimelech to set his own ambush against Gaal's army when he goes out to look for Abimelech. And so that's exactly what Abimelech does. He goes and he hides his men in ambush. In the morning, when Gaal and his men come out from the city gate to prepare themselves to hunt for Abimelech, Abimelech's men begin to move down the mountain toward the city. When Abimelech and his army attack, Gaal and his relatives flee. They don't have any. So in other words, Abel points this out and says, look, you talk a lot bigger than you really are prepared to do, right? You talk so big, put actions behind your words, and Gaal can't do it when he, he leaves. So the perspective of the second mic, Gaal thinks that this is over, right? Bad plan, Gaal's gone, life after normal. So the next morning, the people of Shechem go outside the city to, uh, to work their fields, to work their crops. But in the meantime, Abimelech and his troops have set an ambush for them. And so, at the right time, they emerge from their ambush, and they slaughter the Shechemites. They kill those that come up to the field. They go back to the town, kill those who remain there. They attack the city. They kill all the inhabitants. They raise the town. They sow the fields with salt to ensure that it will never be inhabited again. That's a scorcher for a guy who is so committed to these people. We see that Joshua's prophecy is being fulfilled, right? The Shechemites were not true to their word, so Abimelech, the grandmother, sends fire out to deal with them. 
God, he is plotting to see there were some who were managed to escape. They flee to the defense tower and take refuge there. But Abimelech and his men go out to the forest. They cut down the uh, fire brushes, the, the, the brush, brushwood, be able to set on fire. They bring them back to the tower. They them all out the base, light the wood on fire, and the fire consumes the tower and kills all those inside the tower, the thousand or so men and women who had hold us there for safety. So by the end of verse 49, the first part of Joshua's prophecy had been fulfilled. God brought judgment upon the Shechemites for their participation in the Bemelech's treachery against his brothers. They are enduring here God's judgment for their participation to bring treachery to the people of, of Israel itself. They're receiving judgment because, most of all, their spiritual treachery against the Lord. Well, the second part of Joshua's prophecy is fulfilled in verses 50 to 57. Abimelech decides to make a move against a nearby town, Sebed, not far from Shechem, perhaps anywhere between five and ten miles. And as he goes to that city, he captures it as well. But like Shechem, Sebed had a defense tower, and many of the inhabitants went to, the, uh, to that defense tower to take refuge in it, to kind of survive this, this coming onslaught. And so Abimelech thinks, well, this is before he's done this, same song, different verse. Let's go out and get some firewood, they get some brushwood, they bring it back. Put it to the base of the city. He is intending to set it on fire, thinking that he will burn out all those who are taking refuge there. But before he could set the tower on fire, a woman who had taken refuge at the very top throws down a heavy millstone and it lands on Abimelech's head and crushes his head. He's not immediately killed. He has the realization that a woman has thrown this millstone upon him, that he is going to die. And so he exhorts his armor bearer to finish him off. Thrust my sword through so he does not die and shrinks from that the hand of a woman. And so there Abimelech dies in verse 55. And the second part of Jotham's fable, his prophecy, was fulfilled in the death of Abimelech. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it's interesting that only three times in this chapter the name of God is mentioned. And two of those three times come in the final verses. In fact, the writer of Judges in verses 56 and 57 interprets for us what has happened. Look at those verses. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seven brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their head. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. So God here, by bringing about the end of those Shechemites, and Abimelech is bringing his judgment to bear upon them for the evil that they had done. And upon Abimelech for injustice for his father's sons, and upon Shechemite for conspiring with Abimelech to commit that atrocity. What we see at the end of chapter 9 is that God will not be mocked. He will not allow his allow evil to stand forever. We should not interpret God's delay to give sin its rightful due as a sign of God's omnipotence, as a sign of God's immorality, as a sign of God's lack of will to do what is right. If God has not provided a recompense for sin, it is only because He is a merciful and gracious God. He is a God slow to anger. He is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
God is not slow or slack to deal with injustice, but he is incredibly patient to call men to repentance and faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent as a propitiation for sin. Friends, one of the main themes of the Bible is that God will bring judgment in his time. God will bring judgment in his time. And so, if you are not a Christian, that is bad, bad news. Because it means that one day, God will make you stand before the bar of his justice. The book of your life will be opened, and all your sins will be exposed. And God will weigh you and your sins against the standards of his righteousness. And you will be found wanting. This isn't a case where when the jury deliberates, you don't know. You have to choose guilty or innocent. This isn't one of those cases. We come into the throne room of the Lord, the judgment seat of the Lord, knowing that we are guilty, knowing that we are judged to receive his punishment. And then when all is said and done, God will sentence you to your condemnation. The Bible describes an eternity suffering his righteous wrath where the worm does not die and the flame is never quenched. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 9.27 it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So again, the good news is this. As long as you have breath check yourself, are you breathing right now? If you are breathing God's mercy is near. The fact that you have life is a sign that God is long-suffering and patient with you. But when death comes, understand that there is no further opportunity, that only judgment remains. And since we don't know when that day will come, today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Don't play fast and lose with God. Turn to Him and be saved. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31 says, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So how can you be saved? The Bible tells us, Repent of your sins and turn to Christ. God sent His only Son into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the kind of life that God requires all of us to live when we have failed to live. And then He went to the cross. He died for your sins. While He suffered on the cross, Jesus endured the judgment that we deserve, the judgment that our sins deserve, the judgment that we were due. So by trusting in Him, God forgives your sins. He no longer holds them to your account. He reconciles you to God. He gives you His Holy Spirit. He sets your life on the path of righteousness, which is the path to true blessing. So please consider the great grace that God shows you and respond to it for Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad that Christ has borne the judgment that you deserve? We never will fear God's eternal judgment because Christ has always propitiated but this grace calls us to respond with faith. Not just faith for our initial conversion, but ongoing faith. Daily faith. Regular faith. Faith in Christ that is expressed in our faithfulness to His Word. 
may we not be Abimelech, or secondly, who persist in spiritual rebellion and treachery against the Lord. But let us be the new covenant people that God has redeemed for himself, a people who are holy and faithful. Let's live along the, the, the lines of what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy. Lord, indeed, we are thankful for these passages that are perhaps unfamiliar to us. Passages that don't roll off our tongue, passages that aren't written for us in daily devotions. Passages, but passages, Lord, that are part of your word, that communicate your revelation to us about who you are and what we are and what you require of our lives. I thank you, Lord, this morning for this look at the one I can see ourselves in him, to be reminded, Lord, of what we deserve, but to be reminded more, even more so, Lord, of your grace and your mercy, your compassion, your loving kindness, your patience. Lord, you are indeed a merciful God. And we thank this morning, Lord, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is many. And as your people this morning, Lord, help us to relish that mercy. Help us not to despise it by, by looking at it lightly. devoting our lives more and more to your way, to faithfulness to your word, to your good purposes for our lives here. And I pray, Lord, this morning for those that might be here, Lord, any Sunday we never know who, who will be here, we never know, Lord, what's going on in our hearts. Perhaps there are even some who are among us who have been self-deceived for many years about the truth they are Today, Lord, they've heard, they've seen, you've opened their eyes to the reality of they are, what Christ has done to them. I pray that you would bring them all the way to salvation. Bring upon them conviction of sin. Bring upon them Lord, the assurance of pardon. Help them to turn their eyes to Christ. And so we say, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We pray you help us to walk in